Big challenges need big solutions and big solutions need us to work together. Hello and welcome to the THE Connect podcast. This episode is produced in partnership with Queen's University Belfast. I'm your host, Ashton Wenborn, and today we'll be discussing how data can be used to drive policy change and impact in healthcare. I'm joined today by two experts in the field of oncology who I will let introduce themselves. Thanks very much, Ashton, and great to be here and delighted about the partnership between Queen's and THE. Uh, my name is Professor Mark Lawler. I'm Associate Po Vice Chancellor and Professor of Digital Health at Queen's University, Belfast. How are you doing, Ashton? Thank you very much as well. Um, my name is Dr. Philip Dunn. I'm a reader in molecular pathology in Queen's University, Belfast, in the Patrick G. Johnson Centre for Cancer Research. Thank you very much, and thank you again for joining me today. For the healthcare sector, there are more ways than ever to collect, store and analyse data. This proliferation of information can empower clinicians to make data-driven decisions on the ground, elevating the patient experience and improving health outcomes. This data can also be used to spur policy change, acting as a force for positive transformation that's backed by fact. At Queen's University Belfast, researchers like Mark and Philip are discovering the ways that data-driven approaches can inform and shape health and research policies. So Mark, perhaps you could start us off today by talking about the clinical implementation of discovery research and clinical decision-making. I know you're coming at this from your background in oncology, so how have you seen data change this clinical setting? I mean, I think Ashton, first thing to say is data has been transformational. Um, and there's been an explosion of data over the last uh, decade uh, that both Philip and myself will touch on at various times during this podcast. And um, the other thing, I, I'm, I'm sorry, quite aggressive about this. Uh, I believe that uh, opinion is the lowest form of evidence. So making decisions based on opinion is not the way to go. And certainly the way we've approached it and the people that we work with uh, right across the world, we really see that you know you need to have data intelligence in order to inform decision making. And I'll just give you, you know, a couple of examples in relation to that and um, work that we've done um, in relation to um, cancer policy, for example, um, and looking at cancer control plans. And, and one of the things that's very disappointing in the UK at the moment is uh, England has rolled back from having a national cancer control plan and it's gone to a major disease um plan um really which we're very surprised at and just there two weeks ago i presented to the health and social care inquiry um on the future of uh, cancer in the house of commons and one of the things i highlighted was you, we really need to make our decisions based on evidence not on opinion or supposition um, and it's really important that we do that and one of the things we've done is actually brought together data uh, experts from across the uk um, to use that information to really inform a proper national cancer control plan. And we published that recently in Lancet Oncology. So that's one example of where you're actually collecting data, using it in the, re in the, in the clinical care context in relation to data policy. Another good example is the Lancet Oncology Ground Shop Commission, European Ground Shop Commission that we published just before Christmas last year um, and that was uh, launched at the European uh, Cancer Summit. And there what we did was we said, let's look at, this has been the most comprehensive analysis of cancer research activity in Europe. But what we've done is we've used that 
to inform and reimagine how we actually would perform cancer research. And we very much looked at it, not just in terms of the research, but how then do you implement that research? So implementation science, how do you take what you reimagine and use that to actually reinform? And that's really, you know, add, uh, you know at national level, at European level, it's been very informative. And so there are sort of two examples of where using a data-driven approach, and I, I will touch on other examples as we go through the podcast, but I think there are just two examples where they can actually directly influence policy. And I, I got a great kick out of saying in the House of Commons that uh, data eat opinion for lunch. I'm sure that went down well. So you've outlined there the value of data as a decision-making tool, but before it can even be used in that way, it has to be possible. And as there are more data sources and ways to bring data into clinical settings, how does that wealth of information get turned into something that makes sense in the policymaking sphere or when discussing treatment options with patients? Um, Philip, is that something that you're grappling with at the moment? Yeah, it really is. And your, your question touches on something that it's quite difficult to describe because sometimes the idea of data can be seen as this, this singular unit. Um, we, we know from medicine that one size fits all treatment doesn't work. And the same idea should be applied to, to data itself. So we can collect very small, defined, really important pieces of information from population level data or in the, the genomic space that I work in. We can we can collect massive amounts of data from very, very small samples, be it a tumor or even individual cells from a tumor. So, I mean, I'll go in a little bit more detail in that. Um, as cancer researchers, we're, we're absolutely residing in what has been a, a data revolution, um, all driven by molecular uh, information. Um, it, we can now start to derive molecular profiling um, at a level that we've never seen before. So if we only go back less than two decades ago, uh, the genomics world was, was reeling and terribly excited about the fact that we completed the first draft genome less than 20 years ago. Fast forward to today, we're now in a point where in, in my lab and in almost every lab, it's achievable to collect genomic information, transcriptomic information, proteomic information, and everything in between about individual cells from an individual tumor. And the world just isn't ready for that. You know, we're at we're at a point where we're producing at, at reduced cost, absolutely accessible to any lab. And even if a lab can't necessarily afford to produce their own molecular data, publications and funders are enforcing us to make this widely available. So in many ways, the bottleneck has become collapsing that data into manageable, important um, features and information that we can feed into the clinic. So, you know, overall, if we think that's only two decades, we've gone from the first sample to give us that first level of information and we're still trying to make sense of that and and in terms of academic training going back to schools going back to undergraduate teaching going back to master's level postgraduate level and ph phd and and onwards it's about building those training networks into um into education to ensure that the people that are analyzing this data can translate that information into those clinical decision making tools that you're asking about so um, yeah, we're we're in a position we've never been before. The field has moved so quickly that we're scrambling to catch up. But I, I guess the the idea of what we've done in in Belfast and largely under Mark's leadership is is to identify those different disciplines. So in order to handle this type of data, 
you need to have computational skills. You need to have a biomedical science and a cancer biology background. You also need to have pathology skills to look at the tissue samples and understand it. And bringing new courses and training to put these together in order to produce that next generation of, of researchers to understand and turn this information into, into tools that can help patients. I think your point about continually training people as a technology that's available develops is really important. And it strikes me that Mark's job title as Professor of Digital Health highlights how key these burgeoning and innovative digital tools and technologies are to the healthcare sector. I mean, Philip listed off this set of skills, experience and backgrounds that clinicians now need and it was a pretty long list so uh, do those people yeah. exist or it's, it's a really well that's one of the things we're doing as philip said we're, we're training that new breed of individuals i mean it's a really exciting time to be in research and that and the implementation of that research into clinical practice and data is helping us to do that and, and philip is absolutely right and, and we wrote an article together recently which we can you know, put in the chat and you can put in afterwards or something like that in relation to digital oncology and it really is sort of almost a new breed of people who then can are comfortable with handling the data, but also understand the sort of cancer biology as well, because uh, it needs to have that together and then see what the opportunities. It's an incredibly exciting time uh, to be in research and the implementation of that research, particularly in cancer. I know I'm biased in that regard, but it, it, you know, it's it's you know I've been in this game for thirty years, and you know the changes that have happened in the last five years, in the last one year even have been sort of, you know, incredible. And one of the things we've realized is the need to bring different disciplines together. And I think, you know, whereas beforehand, you know, physicists worked on one problem, biologists worked on a different problem, computer scientists worked on a different problem. Now we're bringing them together. And one of the things we're doing in Belfast is an initiative called Momentum One Zero, where we're bringing together what we call secure connected intelligence. So we're bringing together cybersecurity, which we're really strong on in Belfast, probably one of the best clusters of cybersecurity in Europe, but has been applied mostly in the fintech and the defense industry and not really in the life and health sciences space. But we're now looking at doing that in relation to bringing that and also almost creating collider spaces, both virtual and actual, where different disciplines can come together and look to try and solve each other's problems. And I think that's a really exciting way to be sort of challenge led, to look at solutions, but to bring everybody to bear into it. So rather than being siloed, say, this is actually how we're going to deliver. Big Cancer is a big challenge. You know, it's, it's going to be the most common killer of mankind in the next 20 years. Um, it already is in certain countries and certain parts of the world. So big challenges need big solutions. And big solutions need us to work together. So team science is really the way to go. And that team science includes interdisciplinary team science, not just getting 20 of one type of person, because 20 of one type of person will just talk to each other and all agree with each other. We don't necessarily want to agree with each other. We want to be disruptive. We want to come up with different ideas. And so this idea of momentum, and that's why we called it Momentum One Zero, was you know the idea. So we're really excited about that. And we're going to be building it down near Titanic. So it'll actually be a physical building and then also obviously bringing together different uh, disciplines together uh, to address some of the big challenges that the world faces. I like the idea that you're hoping to encourage some friendly disagreement between academics. But yeah, your point about bringing people together with really different points of view to collaborate on these grand challenges is clearly essential. But 
how does that collaborative process begin and produce results if you're all coming from such different starting points? Yeah, really good question. Ashton and Philip will contribute to this one as well. But I, I was very much involved in the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, and that was exactly what we were trying to do was bring different people together, but also establish standards, because it's true if we're all using different Rosetta stones, for example, we're not going to translate anything um, to take this sort of classical analogy. And so it's looking at how we bring people together. Uh, one of the ways in which you bring to bring people together is that there's fair value for everybody in it. So fair value for the clinician who's involved, fair value for the different types of scientists. Most importantly, in terms of cancer, is fair value for the patient and also for the health system, and also fair value for innovation and for industry. So it's looking at so that if you bring people together and they and show them that one, this is going to work, but also you're going to get something out of it. That's a lot easier. Whereas if you're just bringing everybody together and then whoever shouts loudest is the one who gets the prize, then that's not really going to help. And it's just because the challenge, you know, the more we've learned about cancer, the more we realize that we need to learn more. And so that's why we need to bring different viewpoints, different ways of looking at things, different expertise. If we were doing this on video, I'd use an example that I use a lot in relation to if I'm looking down the microscope, um, as a pathologist, and I, what I'm looking at is pattern recognition. I'm trying to distinguish a, a cancer cell from a normal cell. If I'm a bird watcher, an ornithologist, I'm looking through my binoculars. What am I looking at? I'm looking at plumage. Again, it's pattern recognition. If I'm looking up, uh, like hopefully I will be with Brian Cox this evening, up at the sky, um, at the stars. Again, what am I doing with my uh, telescope? It's pattern recognition. So it's the same process, but you'd use different technologies. And what we're starting to now see is that astronomers are starting to work with pathologists to look at better ways of pattern recognition. So that's just an example of why working together makes sense. I'm sure Philip would want to come in here as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a great question because as, as Mark has outlined too, cancer is a massive, it's the grand challenge. It really is the grand challenge of our time. So by bringing together groups of people that are focused and centralized around a central question. So making sure everybody agrees on the question to start off with. Um, and then you build that trust and it's the, you know, the mutual beneficial approach to it. Um, you can have multiple different groups around the world that are experts in their own field. And I'll come back and I'll keep beating the drum. But the way you get them to work together is you get those early career researchers that are trained in two disciplines, three different disciplines, and it can actually translate between different groups. Um, I was very lucky in my, my during my training to go to Turin. Um, my main job going to Turin without a, a, a spot of Italian was to navigate between a bioinformatics computational biology group, a pathology group, and a molecular biology group. And I went between their lab meetings and basically translated what each of them were saying to each other, because within disciplines, we've we've built up vocabulary. So in molecular biology, we speak to each other in a way that we all understand. I know I can have a conversation with my colleague in maths and physics or my colleague in engineering, use the same words, but they derive completely different meaning from it. So making sure that those people that are skilled in those individual disciplines have the ability to freely move between labs, wherever they may be, and they generally are all around the world, and are supported in doing that, both financially and also in terms of job security. So that the kind of final point on that is it, what we say 
in academic, we know the academic research field is precarious. We know it's difficult to get funding. We know that long contracts in academic research are a rarity until you are made permanent. So for these early career researchers, we are faced in Belfast with a really difficult decision where we can offer them very long hours, we can offer them short-term contracts, and we hope that they buy into the, the question and buy into the idea. But we are always aware of industry that pays a lot more than we do, that will give them job security over the shoulder. When we lose those people, we've lost seven, eight years of training. And these people want to stay. They want to stay and answer these questions in cancer research. But when you're faced with in your early career life of job security, job stability, start up a family, start up a life, buy a house, and you get that offer from industry, it's very, very difficult. So one of the one of the most difficult things for us is seeing somebody that wants to stay, seeing somebody that wants to answer this and push the field on. And we know if they're given another couple of years of job security and stability, they can answer those questions that my era can't answer. And, and when we lose them, it's really, really difficult. But that's I, I think that's just the key, the support for these early career researchers that get this new wave of understanding, get this new wave of, of how to, to work in cancer research, can balance molecular data, but also population data, can balance what a pathologist is saying to what a clinician wants to hear. And that's that's what we're training here in Belfast, and that, that's what we need to keep. That idea of developing a kind of universal language that can cross those disciplinary boundaries is obviously an important part of facilitating successful collaboration. And so while the COVID pandemic and lockdown showed us that progress can be made using digital tools and remote working methods, how impactful is having a physical space to bring researchers together in one room? Mark mentioned that momentum one zero is really Mm. that's the idea of that it's bringing everybody together and that the idea will be there will be industry and innovation in that space as well because i think we have to have those conversations everybody can contribute to the solution and but it's providing the opportunity providing the milieu for you know sort of younger uh, both students but also early career researchers to sort of learn from the sort of uh, more experienced people but also then bring up their own ideas and challenge the older people I love being challenged myself it's great particularly when I'm now sort of grey-haired and getting old um, but it's really important because otherwise if we all sort of say we agree with each other we never get anywhere so you need to challenge you need to come up with different ideas you need to be sort of looking at ways in which you can really challenge things and the other thing is we need to think about different types of data so I'll give you a really good example um, so of, of using health economic data. And this is actually an idea that Philip had first, and then I have some skills in that area and we converted it into reality. So what we did was we worked with Bell Cancer UK, so the UK uh, cancer charity, and they were railing against a situation where patients who receive a particular drug called cetuximab, uh, they weren't able to take breaks from this drug. So uh, they had to, had to be on the drug all the time. If they came off the drug, then they wouldn't be able to get back on it again. That was unfair. Um, it was a, a, a piece of, um, you know, sort of rule that really didn't reflect what was should be happening in reality. Um, but what we did was not only did we look at, you know, justifying it from a clinical sense that it makes sense to, to actually um, go on a, a break, but also we justified it from a health economic sense. And we showed that we would save the UK National Health Service uh, one to two billion uh, pounds. And, and unfortunately, that was the critical piece of evidence that actually caused the, 
rules to be changed. And it took us five years, but it's now in, in law and it's now the fact that, um, you know, um, uh, patients can go on uh, treatment breaks and it, it makes a huge difference to their quality of life. It also saves money for the health service. Um, but that piece of evidence might have been the piece of evidence you would have thought was the one that was going to actually swing the, the the day, take the day, but it was. So it's just important to recognize that, you know, sometimes different types of data are the ones that may be critical in particular situations to answer particular questions or to influence particular policy. And, you know, that was a great victory for data. It was also a great victory for Bell Council UK, and they were delighted to work with us closely on that. But it just shows how you can actually really get a pragmatic answer uh, that allows you to change policy and it's for the benefit of patients. Yeah, and, and, and I think just on that, almost a, a, a sidestep here, a slightly related point about the value of, of conversations and, you know, many conversations with Mark outside of the academic setting at conferences, at meetings, at, at different things. And that's where these ideas in come the pub. from. So, in the pub. <laughs> um, so during COVID that, that you mentioned, Ashton, so my group, well, the computational people in my group, like everybody else in the UK and around the world, because they're office-based, they were immediately went off site my lab based people where we were able to work split shifts and we were able to to distance and work so if i look at almost 12 months that my computational people were off site in their house productivity went up two threefold they were doing far more work than they ever would have done in in the large room in behind me but what we lost was exactly the point that has come up multiple times in this conversation they are all thinking differently they've all got different disciplines they were progressing work and progressing questions and their analyses to a point where they weren't necessarily conversing with the rest of the team. They weren't speaking to the pathologist behind them or the immunologist to say, what do you think of this? So we ended up producing vast amounts more information. But when we transitioned back in on site, it did take us months and months to actually, okay, now let's step all our way back through all that information and make sure that it is Yes, it's relevant in your discipline, but if you've lost that slight question, so it does come back to the value of conversations, collaborations in person, and actually having almost mandated non-analysis days where we just talk about what we're doing, talk about the results that we have, examine the question constantly, and the more different disciplines we have in there. So bring in programmers, bring in computational, bring in because as Mark says, it's it's that discipline that you haven't thought about or that idea that you haven't necessarily thought about that might be the key to actually unlock, you know, this piece of information going into legislation or going into policy. So, yeah, we, we found that absolutely that the value of working in person together and, and talking about what you're doing as much as possible. I'm glad to hear that the value of a good chat is something that's present in the scientific community. Um, but I'd like to loop back to something that we briefly touched on earlier when Mark mentioned the cybersecurity implications of data-led healthcare, and that's the ethical considerations of big data collection. So how are you navigating those ethical questions, and are there any misnomers about data privacy that you'd like to address? Thanks, Ashton. Really good question. Uh, one of the positions I hold as scientific director of DataCan, which is the UK's health data research hub for cancer. And we sort of addressed this upfront and central uh, when we set up DataCan. And the way we do it is that you work very much directly with patients and you co-create everything you do with patients. Um, and that's really been a, a refreshing way of doing things. 
Um, it's actually achieved a lot more than we would have done if we hadn't have done it that way. And actually, people have called out to us and said, can you help us to do the same thing? Um, and so the recognition is that what we're doing is that we actually get patients to look at the protocols that we're developing, to input into those, to make sure they're patient relevant, but also privacy sensitive. And um, we look at ways in which we can, the patient obviously, uh, two of members of the patient obviously group are on our uh, overall executive. So they actually have twice the representation of any other partner in the program. And they're involved in our management group. They're involved in each of the projects. So it's really a real co-creation. Um, and that's been uh, incredibly positive because it's allowed us to actually say, not only are we doing something that's relevant to patients, we're doing something that's approved by patients. Um, and looking at ways in which to do that in a, a data privacy context, but also finding that balance. And that's where I go back to that fair value uh, perspective. So as I said, first of all, fair value to the patient and to the National Health Service, fair value to the researcher, fair value to the clinician, but also fair value to um, the industry as well, or the innovation drivers. Um, and I think if you get that balance right, it's really important. Um, if you don't get that balance right, and we've had a number of obviously Cambridge Analytica will be the specific example, if you think about it historically, then you lose the trust. And if you lose trust, it's very difficult to regain it. So one of the things we've emphasized very much is that trust approach. And the best way to have trust is actually to work in co-creation. So rather than saying, I think this is what patients want, or I think this is what, it's actually, let's workshop it. Let's you know sort of look at ways in which we can work together. Um, and that's really important. The, the other thing is you do need to try and find a balance between privacy and what's of benefit to patients. So, you know, otherwise you just sort of, you know, everything just sort of coalesces and you don't get anywhere. So you do need to find a balance. Um, and I think it's really important if you look at one of the positive, very few positive impacts of COVID, but one of the positive impacts of COVID was actually we we reduced our sort of stringency in terms of how we deal with the use of data because we had to, in order to develop understanding of what was happening and to develop the vaccines, et cetera, we had to. If you look in that context, uh, it was still done in a very thinking about, you know, sort of protection of patients. But if you look at it, it was actually done in such a way that it made it more easy to use data but we didn't see any uh, data privacy breaches, for example. So there is a middle ground, if you like. Um, and, and that's where we we try and plow that middle ground between being too prescriptive and being too lenient. There is a sort of a middle ground that sort of balances the the risk with the benefit. And I, I think you have to do that because we're, we're dealing with ways in which we can provide better outcomes, better treatments, better diagnostics for patients. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very tricky balance, too, because if, if you look at the two opposite ends of, of what Mark has described there, that there's sometimes the worry over a, a, a privacy leak or some sort of leak. The easy way to solve that is to ensure that no data is is linked, no data is allowed to go out and we, we silo it. And as Mark says, speaking to patients, they're they're almost always at the opposite end. They want as much of their data used as possible. Um, and and finding that that balance in the middle and and the the example I would give is we know that when we get um, patient samples that come to us and we do our molecular profiling with it, the the concerns, uh, the policy and the concerns over making sure that that data doesn't leak out or doesn't um, doesn't get uh, escape, means that we find it very very difficult to link 
our molecular information to the, the patient information, to scan information, how well they're doing, to GP records, to you know, to population level type data. And it's and the answer may be lurking in there, but yeah, I, I don't profess to have the answer to it in any way, shape, or form. But dialing that back from the absolute no to ensure that nothing ever escapes right back to what the patients actually want for their information. Yeah, it's obviously a difficult balance. And I think just from a personal point of view, I've always initially refused those requests to collect and use my data because you do become so wary of the privacy aspect. But in this healthcare context for patients, actually it's counterintuitive to keep that vast amount of information siloed. So I don't know, maybe I'll start giving away my cookies to whoever wants them. I, I, I think it's when you put it into context, because if I'm offered, you know, the, the opportunity to share all my data now, I'd probably say no as well. But for a cancer patient, you know, a cancer patient is faced with this life threatening disease and they know that, you know, sharing their molecular information, sharing their, their diagnostic data, sharing their clinical data has the opportunity to try and influence their treatment. So influence their disease management. They will they will say yes. The second wave of that is that using their molecular information for longer term studies. Yes, that may not benefit them personally, but they know that their their tumor sample their molecular information, their clinical information might be put together as Mark has really nicely described to find that pattern that doesn't exist for an individual sample, but find that pattern over the long term that allows us to change policy and improve things. And I think you're absolutely right. You're, what you've described is probably what anyone in the UK or Ireland would say. But in actual fact, when you put it in the, in the hands of the cancer patient that's faced with this, you know, this diagnosis and this decision to make, it's a very, very different way of, of thinking. The important thing is that we do everything transparently and honestly. I think if we do that, then we're a lot more likely to be successful. I think the, the challenges and the, the controversies have come from people not being transparent, trying to sort of, you know, sort of pull the wool over people's eyes and not actually presenting the full facts. So I think if you present the full facts and the reasons and the logic and the weighing up of, because it is a weighing up process, I think people are a lot more understanding. And I, I think that's, you know, the we either not explaining it properly or trying to hide things are the two reasons why health data has had a bad name and it shouldn't have a bad name because both of those things can be done effectively and can be done with uh, the you know working in close collaboration and co-creation with patients and members of the public thank you so my last question today is looking more to the future and talking about the goals and aspirations that you individually and Queen's University Belfast and actually the healthcare sector more widely have to continue to leverage data to drive policy change and positively impact clinical practices and patient outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, two, two aspects are really important. I think artificial intelligence and how we use it we haven't really talked about that yet, but I think that's critically important. And I think now we're starting to see the technologies that may be moving ahead of the actual, you know, sort of application. Uh, I think we need to do it in an appropriate way, but I think we need to look at what are the advantages of AI and how we can use that to best advantage to everybody. Again, getting back to that fair uh, play principle. I think the other thing we're starting to see, particularly in the United Kingdom, is that we can actually do large studies, like studies. There was a study last week in relation to COVID vaccination uh, that looked at right across the whole 67 million people in the United Kingdom. So being able to do things at scale 
are going to give you answers that are relevant then to the whole population. So that's really important. I think the other thing is we're going to have the ability uh, with our phones, you know, to have our own personal data on that. And I think that's going to be a big area where people then make decisions themselves um, as to whether they want to go into particular clinical trials or not. And I think we should look at ways in which we can make that possible, but also make it manageable. Um, because I think there are you know, balances and checks in, in that situation. Um, and, but I, I, you know, because we're going to move away from going to hospitals as the only way in which we can actually uh, deliver healthcare and, and most importantly, well-being. Um, and if, if we're going to look at in that sort of community approach, we have to have data as part of the way in which we actually make decisions in that setting. Um, so I, I'm very excited I'm a little bit apprehensive, maybe in, in part, but I'm really excited that we have the ability but also we just need to make sure that we bring everybody along on that journey together. Um, and if we do that, I think we're going to deliver something that's really special um, for our population, for our patients, but also for the betterment of science and understanding of diseases like cancer, which are such a, a blight on, 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 on everybody, one out of two in their lifetime develop cancer. So, you know, big problems require big solutions. And Philip, did you want to add anything to that, your own aspirations? Yeah, Mark has really nicely covered an awful lot of it. I think I, I, I've um, hammered home a couple of times about training of early career researchers as we come up. So I, I, without repeating that again, I'll complement that with, you know, population level national kind of awareness campaigns to show exactly what what it is we want to do, exactly why the value of sharing data is out there as well. Because as Mark says, we can't do this in private, we can't do this without partnership with patients and the general public um, and then complement that with the new wave of people that know how to actually do this and implement it. So, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's a huge opportunity and, you know, to sort of end on very much a positive note, you know, this is the way forward and that's why we're doing it. Um, and we're doing it for the benefit of patients and also future patients. So we're we're trying to obviously future proof what we're doing as well. And, and the only way to really deliver that is through data intelligence that actually points us in the right direction. Absolutely. And that optimistic note does bring us to the end of our conversation today. So thank you, Mark and Philip, again for joining me. It's been really fascinating to hear about the work you're doing and what data means for this really universal challenge. Um, but for now, thank you and goodbye. For more insights from this conversation, you can visit the Times Higher Education and Queen's University Belfast Hub at timeshighereducation.com forward slash hub forward slash Queen's University Belfast. Subscribe to the THE Connect podcast to receive the latest episodes as soon as they're released. Mm -hmm.